This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Friends, this morning I spoke about Buddhism and psychoanalysis. And as you've just heard, uh, this evening uh, we are still on psychological ground. Uh, This evening, as Mike Rogers has announced, our subject is Buddhism and the language of myth. And there is, I may say, a definite reason for my selecting Uh, this evening, this particular topic. We are all familiar, I think, or most of us are familiar, I think, with the parable related by the Buddha called the parable of the blind men and the elephant. In case anyone hasn't heard this parable, this story with a meaning before, It goes something like this. Apparently in ancient India, in the days of the Buddha, there was a certain king. And just to create for himself a little amusement, he had an elephant brought into the palace courtyard. Then he sent his minister out into the streets of the city uh, to collect about a dozen blind men. And then when the minister had brought the blind men, when he'd collected them together in the palace courtyard, the blind men were shown the elephant, not shown it visually, of course, but led towards the elephant and made to feel it. And then they were asked uh, by the king to describe the elephant. So one caught hold of the ear, and he said the ear, the elephant, is like a great winnowing basket. Another caught hold of the trunk and said the elephant is just like a snake. Uh, Another caught hold of the tail and said the elephant is like a broom. Uh, Another caught hold of a tusk and said the elephant is like a plowshare. Another stood underneath the elephant and caught hold of the belly and said the elephant is like a great pot. Another caught hold of the leg and said the elephant is like the pillar supporting a house. So in this way, they all gave their various descriptions and accounts of the elephant. And obviously they contradicted one another. Uh, they, they realized that they were contradicting one another. Neither believed any of the others. And eventually, we are told, they started fighting and quarreling among themselves, blind as they were. And the king was highly amused uh, by this little incident. It uh, created a pleasant diversion for him, apparently, uh, for the afternoon. Uh, So this little story uh, illustrates the dangers of a one-sided approach to the truth. The truth is something total, something multidimensional, something multifaceted. But we see one aspect. Uh, We take hold of one dimension, as it were, one facet, and we say, this is the truth. The truth is this. Not realizing that there are so many other aspects, dimensions, and facets, remaining blind 
to all of them, just concentrating on one particular aspect or dimension or facet. So the Buddha's parable of the blind men and the elephant illustrates this sort of erroneous and one-sided approach to the truth. Now this little story, this parable of the blind men and the elephant, can illustrate not only one-sided approaches to the truth, but also the history of the study of Buddhism in the West. Buddhism is like the elephant, hmm? has many aspects, many dimensions as it were, uh, many facets. And then one blind man as it were, one scholar after another, comes, examines Buddhism and says, Buddhism is this, or Buddhism is that. One says Buddhism is humanitarianism. Another says Buddhism is mysticism. Another says Buddhism is atheism. Another says uh, Buddhism is a form of oriental philosophy. Another says that uh, Buddhism is rationalism tinged with mysticism. Another says it's mysticism tinged with rationalism. So in this way, they all give their different accounts of Buddhism, all equally one-sided, all containing some element of truth, but none true as a generalization. But there's some difference between the blind men in the original story and these blind men, uh, the scholars who describe Buddhism. Uh, in the original parable, the blind men just start fighting and quarreling among themselves. But with regard to the study of Buddhism, what happens is that each blind man, having examined one, uh, one aspect of the elephant, Buddhism, goes away and he then writes a book about it. So in this way, you get so many different uh, one-sided presentations of Buddhism. If we look over some of the books uh, written even 40, even 50 years ago about Buddhism by Western scholars, then we're quite astonished because even within this short period, our knowledge of Buddhism has grown so much, uh, meager though it still is, that those older, earlier presentations are still outdated. If you read, for instance, Wardell's uh, Buddhism the, or the Lamaism of Tibet, then you can't help laughing at some of his descriptions of Buddhism as when he says that... Uh, his philosophy is uh, sophistic uh, nihilism, and when he speaks of the Tibetans worshipping uh, the fiendesses or great demonesses or Buddha demonesses uh, and so on. But many of these one-sided presentations uh, of Buddhism uh, nevertheless are still quite widely current. And this is perhaps not surprising in view of the fact that Buddhism is such a vast and such a complex system, or perhaps we should say, organism. It is so vast, it has so many different aspects, levels, dimensions, applications, ramifications. It's like one of these vast old Gothic cathedrals uh, that is not surprising that we cannot grasp the whole of Buddhism, cannot grasp it in its totality all at once or immediately. But this certainly does not mean that we should ever acquiesce in any one 
of these one-sided uh, presentations. There is no need for us to do this anymore. As the years go by, uh, more and more material on Buddhism, more and more reliable and authentic material is becoming available in so many Western languages. Just to give you an example, for instance, Dr. Kunza, in what is really a monumental uh, labor of love, has quite recently translated the whole of the perfection of wisdom corpus of scriptures. You know, every morning, or nearly every morning, we've been reciting the heart sutra, the heart of the perfection of wisdom. So this little sutra occupies only one page, but it gives the essence of the perfection of wisdom. But there's not just this one little sutra devoted to the subject of the perfection of wisdom or transcendental wisdom. Uh, there are more than 30, 34 or 35 of these sutras or discourses of the Buddha dealing with the perfection of wisdom. Uh, some of them are several volumes long. There's the perfection of wisdom in a hundred thousand lines, and there's the perfection of wisdom in twenty-five thousand lines, in eighteen thousand, ten thousand, eight thousand, five hundred lines. Perfection of wisdom in just one page, the Heart Sutra. There's even the perfection of wisdom in a single letter. It's all said to be concentrated there in that one letter, uh, the letter A. But how that comes to be, we're not going to examine just at present. The point I want to make is that this whole vast body of literature, these thirty-odd great sutras or discourses of the Buddha on the perfection of wisdom, transcendental wisdom, have all now been made available in English uh, thanks to the labours of Dr. Kanza. So we do have this enormous amount of material available for study. There's no excuse at all for us not having a very good idea at least of what is meant in Buddhism, in Mahayana Buddhism particularly, about the perfection of wisdom or transcendental wisdom. There's no shortage of material uh, any longer on this topic. Somewhat more recently, to give another example, uh, Dr. David Snellgrove has edited in Sanskrit and Tibetan and translated a whole tantra. This is to say the He Vajra Tantra. This is the first tantra uh, to be translated, first Buddhist tantra to be translated in its entirety, uh, so far as I know, into any European language, certainly into English. But we now do have this available to us uh, for our study. Uh, if you just go through it by yourself, uh, without a teacher, uh, you won't make head or tail of the text, uh, even Dr. Kanzu, when he came to review uh, this particular volume, or these two volumes rather, he confessed that he wasn't able to make very much of it. Because it's not sufficient just to read a text like the Hevajra Tantra. One has to study it with a teacher and actually practice uh, according to the teacher's uh, instructions. But this is neither here nor there. The point I'm trying to make with the help of these illustrations, is that we have nowadays uh, have uh, had at least in the course of the last uh, 10 or 15 years more and more opportunities of correcting and enlarging our total picture <coughs> of Buddhism. 
it's not possible for us to begin to see Buddhism as a whole. And it's less necessary than ever, and there's less excuse for us uh, than ever for relying upon one-sided and to that extent misleading presentations of the Buddha's teaching. Now, one of the one-sided presentations of Buddhism, which is still quite widely current, is that Buddhism is rationalistic. I'm not saying rational, I'm saying rationalistic. The presentation which sees Buddhism entirely and exclusively in terms of rationalism. This particular presentation says that Buddhism appeals only, or at least appeals primarily, to the reason. It says that Buddhism is a philosophy rather than a religion. For instance, Dr. George Grimm, a great German Buddhist scholar, had written a thick book which is entitled Buddhism, the Religion of Reason. This is characteristic. He selects reason as the distinguishing feature of Buddhism and he calls it Buddhism, the philosophy, the religion of reason. Now, he wrote this book about 40 years ago and it's rather significant that very recently in a new edition uh, there's an emendation to the title and it's now called Buddhism, the religion of reason and meditation. But you see, meditation comes in as an afterthought. Eh? Uh, there's an appendix tacked on about meditation. Primary conception is of Buddhism, the religion of reason, with meditation, as I said, just tacked on as a sort of afterthought. Even so, the change is significant. Forty years ago, one could publish a book and call it Buddhism, the religion of reason, and leave it at that. But nowadays, one has at least to act uh, and meditation. One has at least to bow in the direction of meditation, uh, genuflect in the direction of meditation, if uh, nothing else. Now, George Grimm, as I've said, was a German scholar. He was a European, a Westerner. But we mustn't think that this rationalistic, reason-only type of presentation of Buddhism is found only in the West. Uh, it is found, or has begun to be found, also in the East, uh, especially in some of the Theravada countries and among English-knowing Buddhists, uh, including English-knowing monks. I remember in the course of my own uh, travels and adventures and studies in the East, uh, I have sometimes been told myself that, I mean, by Eastern Buddhists, uh, Buddhism is based on pure reason. Hmm? Or, sometimes it has been said, sometimes told me, uh, Buddhism is scientific. This is a very popular ploy nowadays. Or, sometimes even, Buddhism anticipates modern science. Uh, several Eastern Buddhists have written very big books to, to demonstrate uh, that all modern sci scientific discoveries, uh, including things like genes and atom bombs, were all anticipated by the Buddha and thought out by him and if you study the Abhidharma hard enough, you can find them all there. It is a very popular sort of approach and presentation in some quarters in the East nowadays. And sometimes even I have been told uh, by some Eastern Buddhists 
that modern science proves Buddhism. This again is a very popular ploy. In lots of Buddhist magazines which are issued in the East, you find this sort of argument, that science is the supreme sort of arbiter, as it were, and science has succeeded in proving the truth of Buddhism, that science demonstrates that Buddhism is true. Buddhism is a scientific religion, or sometimes it's even said Buddhism is pure science. Now this is all, I'm afraid, uh, very naive uh, indeed. It's not, of course, that there are no uh, non-rational elements in Buddhism in the Theravada countries. There are plenty of these non-rational elements, uh, fortunately. Otherwise Buddhism would have been dead in these countries uh, long ago. I sometimes put the matter a little paradoxically and say that it's better to have a bit of superstition rather than too much pure rationalism. Uh, you can perhaps compare uh, rationalism to a garden made entirely of rock and gravel. It may look quite nice and, and neat and clean, a nice area of cement huh? and a few nice rocks and pieces of stone dispersed here and there and gravel walks, uh, no uh, trees or no uh, grass, no flowers. It may be quite beautiful in a way, at least quite functional and hygienic as it were, but though it may be beautiful, it will be sterile. Eh? Nothing will grow. But we may say, on the other hand, that superstition is rather like a garden which is full of weeds. Uh, even though the weeds in a way are undesirable things, the fact that there are so many weeds at least shows that the soil is good, the soil is fertile. So we can make this sort of comparison. The rationalistic type of presentation is more like this beautiful but sterile uh, rock and stone garden, uh, whereas a more superstitious sort of element, uh, though much has to be weeded out, uh, is rather like the garden with many weeds which at least prove its fertility and richness. I've sometimes found in the East that English-knowing uh, monks, especially in the Theravada countries, are a bit ashamed of the non-rational element in popular Buddhism, uh, especially, for instance, in Ceylon. Uh, I remember when I went first to Ceylon in 1945, I think it was, or end of 1944, uh, I, I, I went one day to a temple uh, not far from uh, Colombo. And there was a great courtyard, I entered that, and immediately to the left there was a temple with all sorts of gods and goddesses. So I thought, that's strange, perhaps I made a mistake. Uh, I, I thought maybe I haven't come to a Buddhist temple at all. So I went up and looked at these images, and sure enough they were uh, images of Hindu gods. There was Shiva, there was Ganesha, the elephant-headed god. Uh, there was Lakshmi, there's Kartikeya, the Hindu god of war. Well, that's very strange. I, I know this is a Buddhist temple. How did they come to be here? So a monk came up, a Buddhist monk came up, a Sinhalese, and he happened to know English, so I asked him uh, what are all these gods and goddesses doing here within the precincts of uh, a Buddhist temple. I thought only the Buddha would be found here. So he said, oh, they're just for the lay people to worship. We don't worship them. So this was the sort of attitude, as it were. 
He said, they're just for the benefit of the laity. Hmm? But this, I felt at the time, and I still feel, is a sort of potentially dangerous situation. You get at it where uh, a rationalistic sangha, a rationalistic monastic order, and a superstitious uh, laity. And in this way, a sort of what we may describe as schizophrenia of the Buddhist community uh, develops. Uh, not unlike, for instance, the situation which you had in this country in the 18th century, when uh, clergy, the local parsons, uh, even though they were continuing to administer the sacraments and preach, were really at heart skeptics and rationalists. But the people, the flock, the sheep, in other words, they continued to believe firmly in Christianity. So the two were alienated from each other, as it were, and a sort of split in the religious community occurs. So this sort of situation I did find very much in Ceylon. Uh, sometimes I found that when official Buddhism in Ceylon uh, suppressed the non-rational elements, didn't allow them to find expression within the field of Buddhism, which was kept all sort of clean and neat and, and rational, then they found expression outside Buddhism. Uh, I remember in this connection a very interesting and very lengthy correspondence uh, which ensued in one of the best-known uh, Sinhalese Buddhist magazines, English Buddhist magazines, on the subject of what they called koils. A koil is a, a Hindu temple in Ceylon and in South India. And according to this correspondence, which it went on for a couple of years, I think, uh, more Hindu temples were being built in Ceylon than Buddhist temples, hmm? year by year. And the number of Hindu temples was increasing proportionately all the time. Now, the population of Ceylon is predominantly Buddhist, hmm? uh, not Hindu. Hindu is a minority. So how was it that more Hindu temples were being built, more temples for Hindu gods than for the Buddha? Hmm? So it wasn't because they were being built by Hindus, but because Buddhists were building lay Buddhists, that is to say, ordinary Buddhists, were building not uh, temples to the Buddha, but temples to these Hindu gods and goddesses. So why is this? The reason is that the gods and goddesses of Hinduism, which are sort of closer to the soil than the rather rationalistic uh, Buddha of official Ceylon uh, Buddhism, these Hindu gods and goddesses correspond to those aspects of the Sinhalese psyche, as we may say, that the official Buddhism was unable to cope with and did not, in fact, recognize. So I think this is a very significant and interesting situation, uh, which if we're not careful, or if the Sinhalese Buddhists are not careful, may well mark the beginning of the end of Buddhism uh, in Ceylon. Now, of course, we mustn't go to the other extreme, uh, we mustn't deny that there is a rational element in Buddhism. In fact, the rational element in Buddhism is very strong indeed. And we may go so far as to say that Buddhism is the most rational of all the great religions. But at the same time, and this is the point I want to stress, it is by no means a purely uh, rational. Hmm? Right, uh, a strong rational element 
but not rationalistic, not exclusively rational. After all, we may ask ourselves, what is Buddhism as a teaching are trying to do? Basically, essentially, as a teaching, Buddhism is trying to communicate what we can only describe as a mystery. It's trying to communicate the mystery of enlightenment, the mystery of the Buddha's enlightenment, and trying to communicate that mystery, some hint or some glimpse or some intimation of that mystery to unenlightened man, and trying to communicate it in such a way that unenlightened man, to the measure of his ability, to the measure of his capacity, can actually participate in it. Now, when Buddhism tries to communicate this mystery of the Buddha's enlightenment to man, to unenlightened man, it's obviously trying to communicate it to the whole man, not just to a part of him, but to man in his totality, in all his aspects, all his dimensions, as it were, the whole being, the whole man. And man, we know, is not a simple being. Man is a sort of composite being. To put it very simply, even crudely, man consists of three things. There's the head, there's the heart, and there's the hand. Man is these three things. There's the conscious surface, we may say alternatively, and there are also the unconscious depths. So in order to communicate fully the mystery of the of enlightenment, of the Buddha's enlightenment, Buddhism has to get at, as it were, all of these. Head, heart, hand. Conscious surface and unconscious depths. Has to communicate with them all and speak to them all as best it can. Otherwise there's no real contact, no full contact, no full communication. If Buddhism addresses only the head, or only the heart, or even only the hand. Now how does Buddhism get at the, at the head? How does it communicate with the conscious mind? Well, this it does by speaking the language of reason and logic. In this way, it communicates the mystery of the Buddha's enlightenment to the head, to the conscious mind. It makes use of concepts, makes use of systematic reasoning, makes use of metaphysics, makes use of philosophy, epistemology, psychology even. In this way, it communicates with the head. But how does it communicate with, how does it get at the heart, at the unconscious mind? How does it do this? Because this also do it must, if it is to communicate with the whole man, if it is to communicate fully and totally and convey to the whole man some glimpse or hint or intimation of the mystery of the Buddha's enlightenment. Now Buddhism gets at the heart of man gets at the unconscious mind of man by speaking not the language of logic, 
not the language of concepts or philosophy or metaphysics. These touch only the head. It gets at the heart of the unconscious mind of man by speaking another language, a different, an equally valid language, an equally powerful and important language, and that is the language of myth. And it speaks this language with the help of such things as symbols, with the help of legend, ritual, music, poetry, and so on. And not only Buddhism, but all religions speak this language. Not just the language of logic, but the language also of myth. And they sometimes speak it very, very powerfully indeed. Christianity, we may say, has some very impressive myths and symbols. Christianity has the myth or symbol, call it what you will, of the fall of man hmm? has the symbol or, or the myth of the virgin birth, hmm? the crucifixion, uh, the resurrection. And all these great myths and symbols of Christianity uh, appeal to, affect the emotions, the unconscious mind, the heart, very powerfully and very strongly indeed. Unfortunately, in official Christianity, these symbols and these myths are usually, if not invariably, interpreted literally. And what are really myths, what are really symbols, are regarded as historic facts. Take, for instance, the myth or the symbol of the virgin birth. Hmm? What does this mean? Hmm? According to official Christianity, it means that the mother of Christ, hmm? I mean, at the time of her conception, at the time of Christ's uh, conception rather, uh, was still technically a virgin and remained a virgin. Hmm? This is regarded as a historical fact, that if you could have been present at that time, and if you could have subjected the, the Virgin Mary to a medical examination, you would have found that she was a virgin. This is how it is taken. But this is very, very uh, literal, uh, one might even say crudely literal, but if one looks a little deeper, one, shall, one will find that this idea of virgin birth and virgin motherhood is a universal symbol which we find not only in Christianity, that we find it also in other religions, even pagan religions of Greece and Rome and Egypt and so on. So what does this symbol, this myth of the virgin birth really mean? Hmm? So virgin means that which is pure or one who is pure. Hmm? Virginity represents the state of purity, not just sexual purity, but purity in the full sense, in the complete sense. So virgin birth means that the Christ, or the Christ consciousness, or the higher consciousness, can come into existence, can come to birth, only in the mind which is pure, which is virgin. This is the real meaning of the myth, the real meaning of the symbol. That is only the virgin mind, as it were, which can give birth to the Christ or divine consciousness. But official Christianity interprets the virgin birth, as I've said, in this literal and historical sort of way, and therefore, to a great extent, misses its meaning and misses its significance. Myth, in this way, uh, is transformed into, or hardens into, uh, dogma. 
and belief in this dogma is regarded then as essential to salvation. Not that the spiritual meaning is always or entirely lost, but it's usually very, very much obscured, uh, to say uh, the least. Now in Buddhism, the position is rather different. We may say that Christianity uh, spoke the language of myth from the beginning. Hmm? From the beginning, its appeal was more to the heart, more to the unconscious mind. Only later, it learns to speak the language of reason, the language of logic. And even then, it learned to speak it only rather imperfectly. But in the case of Buddhism, it was the, the other way round. The initial appeal of Buddhism was more to reason, more to the intelligence. And it was only afterwards, especially when Buddhism spread, spread among the masses, that it started appealing to and speaking to the emotions and the unconscious mind. And this sort of development, this sort of procedure, is fully in accordance, we may say, with the whole conception of the spiritual path in Buddhism. As I explained in detail in the course of the eight lectures which we had on the Buddha's and Noble Eightfold Path, the higher path, the path of the higher evolution, the spiritual path, is divided mainly into two great stages. It's divided into what we call the Darshana Marga, or the path of vision, and into the Bhavana Marga, or the path of transformation. The path of vision represents the initial spiritual experience or insight or vision on the heights of one's being, and the Bhavana Marga, the path of transformation, represents the gradual transformation of one's whole being in all its aspects in accordance with that original insight and a vision. The first, the path of vision, is also the path of the stream entrant. Uh, the second is the path of the once-returner, the non-returner, and uh, the arahant. So path of vision, we may say, also represents the realization of truth with the conscious mind, but not with the unconscious mind. But the path of transformation represents the penetration of that truth after it has been realized by the conscious mind into the depths of the unconscious. And the second path, the path of transformation, is of course much more difficult because the unconscious mind is much more difficult to transform than the conscious mind. It takes very, very much longer. And that's why the path of transformation is subdivided into three stages of the once-returner, non-returner, and arahant, whereas the path of vision uh, consists of only one stage, the stage of the stream entrant. So we get the same sort of sequence also in the canonical literature of Buddhism. Now, the earlier texts, especially those we find in the Pali Canon, appeal more to the conscious mind. They speak the language of abstract thought, concept, reason. But the later scriptures, or those which as scriptures are later, as literary records are later, these appeal more to the unconscious mind. They speak the language of concrete image, the language of myth, the language of, of legend. There are, of course, exceptions. Uh, for instance, the, the perfection of wisdom sutras, many of them are quite late, but they continue to address more the reason, not so much the emotions, not so much the unconscious. But on the whole the rule holds good. That the earlier scriptures of Buddhism address the conscious mind, that the later scriptures of Buddhism 
especially some of the Mahayana Sutras and the Tantras, address more the unconscious mind. So it's not surprising we may say that the history of Western uh, Buddhism has followed a similar course. In the West, Buddhism has first of all been grasped intellectually, to some extent at least. That's more or less where we stand now. Now what we have to do is to start assimilating Buddhism uh, emotionally. We've listened to the language of logic long enough. Now we have to start listening uh, to the language of myth. Now let me give you a few examples of the sort of thing I mean. But before I do that, just a few uh, definitions, or at least explanations. I have spoken of symbol, uh, of myth and legend, ritual, these are all parts of the same language. One could also add poetry and parable uh, and so on. Uh, I may, uh, later on in the retreat, uh, speak about psychology of ritual, so I'm not going to say anything about ritual uh, at the moment. I'm going to concentrate for the present more on myth and legend. Now the two terms, myth and legend, are very often used uh, synonymously, rather loosely, and in this way confused. Uh, most people think myths and legends mean sort of stories of ancient uh, gods and heroes, rather like you find in Homer, uh, and so on. But strictly speaking, a myth uh, usually, at least often, explains the origin of a certain object or a certain custom. For instance, take the Prometheus, uh, Prometheus myth from uh, Greek uh, mythology. Uh, Prometheus is supposed to have stolen fire from heaven. And this is a myth to explain the origin of fire. Where did fire come from? Primitive man didn't have fire except by accident. How did he learn about fire? How did he learn how to make it? Well, there's a myth to explain that. A kind god, a titan called Prometheus, he stole it from heaven because fire is in the sky in the form of the sun and, and the stars and so on. So he stole it from heaven and he brought it down to earth. That is how man got the blessing of fire. So the Prometheus myth explains uh, the origin of fire. A legend, on the other hand, is sort of pseudo-history. Uh, myth, uh, myth is not really history at all, uh, but not even in form. But the legend is a sort of pseudo-history. Uh, it purports to be historical. Uh, speaks about kings and battles and so on. But it doesn't really correspond to anything which we can regard as historical fact. Uh, for instance, uh, until only a few hundred years ago in this country, it was believed, there was a legend to the effect that Britain was named after Brutus and that Brutus had come and... Uh, he had founded a kingdom here, and Britain was called Britain after Brutus. But this was only legend, it was pseudo-history, like King Arthur and his knights. I hope I'm not uh, disillusioning anybody about these things. Uh, so a myth, on the other hand, is not really history at all. A myth represents, as it were, psychological experiences and spiritual truths in terms of historical events. It's in this sense, for instance, that the fall of man is a myth. Uh, 
this is not the Christian interpretation, of course, but if we look at the fall of man as a myth, what does it mean? It means we're not to take it literally, we're not to think that uh, so many thousands of years ago there was a man called Adam who lived in a garden called the Garden of Eden, uh, which you can actually find on the map if you look hard enough, and that this Adam is an apple which he'd been commanded not to eat, and because he was disobedient he fell, and this was the fall of man. And it used to be believed in all seriousness by everyone in, in all the Christian countries until up to a hundred years ago only that this was historic fact. It's very difficult for us to grasp this nowadays because there's been such a revolution in our ideas. But uh, and, until as recently as that, until as recently as a hundred years ago, the fall of man, Adam eating the apple, was a historical fact which no one seriously questioned. I myself am not uh, all that old, but I remember not so many years ago meeting a farmer in Devonshire who was astounded when I told him that Adam was not a historical person and refused to believe it. He said, no, it's all there in the good book. And, uh, and yes, it gives the date in the, in the margin of some Bibles, uh, 5004 BC. That's Adam's date. And uh, some theologians worked out the exact day of the week on which he ate the apple and the hour of the day, so it was plain it was all historical fact. But this myth of the fall of Adam isn't a historical fact at all. got nothing to do with anything that ever happened in time. It refers to something which is taking place all the time. When we don't listen to the dictates of our higher nature, we follow the dictates of the lower nature, this is the fall of man. And it didn't happen 5,005 years ago. It might have happened five minutes ago. Or it might have happened five seconds ago. Or it might be happening at this very minute. So the story, the myth of the fall of man, uh, represents or embodies a spiritual truth, a psychological truth, uh, which is eternally valid. It doesn't represent a historical fact. It tells us a truth about human nature, uh, a truth about every man and every woman. It doesn't... Uh, uh, purvey uh, a mere historic fact. Now I'm going to take this evening uh, some examples of Buddhist myth from the life of the Buddha to give you some examples of this sort of non-conceptual uh, mythical approach uh, on the part of Buddhism to the heart of man, to the unconscious depths. Some examples, in other words, of this language of myth. Now the Buddha lived some 2,500 years ago, and that's quite a long time. But though he lived such a long time ago, we do know quite a lot about him. Uh, there are quite a number of biographies of the Buddha in existence, both canonical, that is to say, which are part of the Buddhist scriptures, and also semi-canonical, which are sort of apocryphal. Now, for instance, in the Pali Canon, there are long sections of the Vinaya Pitaka, the Book of the Discipline, which are biographical, uh, which relate various important episodes in the career of the Buddha. Then in what is called Buddhist hybrid Sanskrit, or mixed Sanskrit, there's the Mahavastu, the great story. Then there's the Lalitavistara, uh, the extended sports, as it may be literally translated, then is the Abhinishkramana Sutra, the discourse on the, the going forth of the Buddha. Then there's the Mahaparinirvana Sutra, 
a detailed account of the last days of the Buddha, or rather the last weeks or months of his life. Then there's the Buddha Charita, a beautiful epic poem in classical Sanskrit written by Ashwagosha in the Indian Middle Ages. And all these accounts of the life of the Buddha, they contain material of various kinds. They contain not only what may be regarded as indubitably historic facts, they also contain a great deal of legendary material and a great many mythical elements. Now, leaving aside the legends, let's take up the myths. The myths, we may say, are of two kinds. Uh, those which represent the Buddha as exercising supernormal powers. Now, in some passages in the scriptures, you, you get an incident, you get an episode, where the Buddha, for instance, knows what is going on in somebody's mind. He reads the mind of a monk or a layman. This is what we call telepathy. It used to be fashionable to dismiss telepathy as just a story, as an old wives' tale. But this has now been demonstrated to be empirically verifiable. So we may say that those accounts, those legends or myths, if you like, in the Buddhist scriptures, which represent the Buddha as exercising supernormal powers, such as telepathy, are not myths proper, but they're really historical facts, that which are only regarded as myths in modern times, owing to the limitations of the modern scientific approach. Secondly, we have in the scriptures, in the biographies, that those elements which are myths in the true sense. That is to say, uh, which are representations of psychological experiences and spiritual truths. And it is with these that we are at present concerned. These elements, I may say, are a source of some embarrassment uh, to modern Western scholars. Some of them, when they write about the Buddha, they just cut out these elements. There's always a lot of nonsense, all these mythical elements, they just leave them out. And they're even a source of embarrassment uh, to some rationalizing Eastern Buddhists who would apparently be happy without them. Now I'm going to take up this evening four uh, uh, well-known incidents from the life of the Buddha, mythical incidents as it were, two which occurred before the Enlightenment and two which occurred after the Enlightenment. The first is the story, the myth, if you like, of the Buddha's victory over Mara. A few days ago, when I spoke about the life of the Buddha, I described how he sat down under the Bodhi tree, meditated, and gained enlightenment. But the biographies don't leave it at that they spin a very elaborate myth about this great event. And they describe, for instance, how when the Buddha sat on that seat beneath the Bodhi tree, he was attacked by a terrible army of demons in all sorts of repulsive and horrible forms. And these demons were led by Mara, who is the sort of Buddhist Satan. He's called Mara the Evil One, Mara Papaka. And this particular incident, this particular myth, 
is very vividly and strikingly depicted uh, in Buddhist art as well as being described in Buddhist poetry. There's this beautiful picture, as it were, of the calm figure of the Buddha or the Buddha-to-be seated underneath the Bodhi tree with his eyes half-closed, peacefully meditating. And on all sides there are terrible figures, hideous, deformed, monstrous figures, uh, rather like something uh, out of the, uh, the canvases of the Western artist Hieronymus Bosch. It's very much like that. You get uh, demons with the heads of crocodiles and the heads of wolves, demons with tails and demons with ten arms and demons with eyes in the middle of their chests, all attacking or trying to attack the calm figure seated under the tree. Some are throwing stones, some are spitting flame, others are discharging bows and arrows, and so on. But the Buddha is unmoved. There's a great radiance about the Buddha, a five-colored radiance of white and blue and yellow and red and orange, a five-colored radiance. And when all these weapons, the stones and the flames and the arrows and the spears and the clubs reach the edge of this halo, they're all transformed into flowers. And as flowers, they fall at the Buddha's feet. So this incident, this myth, as I've said, is very beautifully depicted and portrayed in Buddhist art and in Buddhist poetry. And then the myth goes on to relate Mara, the evil one, wasn't finished. Having tried to frighten the Buddha with his demon hosts and failed, what does he do? He tries a more subtle approach, if you can call it that. He sends to the Buddha his three daughters. One is called Lust, the other is called Passion, and the last is called Delight. So they dance in front of the Buddha and exhibit their charms, uh, but the Buddha is still not moved. He doesn't take any notice at all. And in some versions of the story, the three beautiful daughters of Mara, they turn into withered old hags and they creep away. Now what does this represent? All these figures, the demon hosts, Mara the evil one, the three beautiful daughters of Mara, all of them surging up round the Buddha, attacking the Buddha, they all represent the unregenerate forces of the unconscious mind. All those passions, all those cravings which swirl about in the pit of the unconscious, as it were, in conflict, not only with the conscious mind and its aspirations, but even among themselves. The demons represent all the negative emotions like fear and anger and hatred and jealousy and wrath and fury. And the daughters represent different aspects of craving and clinging and lust and desire. And Mara himself, the father of the three daughters, the the leader of the demon hosts, he represents primordial ignorance, spiritual ignorance, darkness, blindness and confusion. And one of his other, and one of his names, or rather the literal meaning of the name Mara is death, uh, the principle of impermanence in its negative form. So we may say that this great myth of the Buddha's victory over Mara represents his victory, the victory of his enlightened consciousness over all the, the negative forces, even the positive forces, 
within his own unconscious mind. This is the significance, the psychological and spiritual significance of this great myth. Then there's another myth, another episode, number two. This is called Calling the Earth Goddess to Witness. The Buddha was sitting beneath the Bodhi tree, and according to Buddhist myth, the spot on which he was sitting was the center of the universe. He was sitting on the diamond throne, the Vajrasana, which was the center of the whole universe. This is, of course, again another myth or an aspect of a myth. The Buddha, in order to gain enlightenment, takes his uh, seat, takes up his position on a central point. This is a sort of concrete presentation of the middle way. You must be perfectly centered and balanced before you can hope to gain enlightenment. So Mara, the evil one, his attempt by no means finished, challenges the Buddha's right to occupy that seat. Hmm? This was the seat, this was the point on which all the previous Buddhas had sat uh, before gaining enlightenment. So the Buddha, the future Buddha, had naturally taken up his seat there because he was about to gain enlightenment. So Mara says, what is your right to occupy that seat? How do you know that you are worthy to sit upon that seat which was occupied by previous Buddhas? How do you know that you are going to gain enlightenment and that you are not just deluding yourself, fooling yourself? So the Buddha said, or the future Buddha said, I know that I am worthy to sit on this seat because for hundreds of previous lives I have observed the perfections, the transcendental virtues. I practice generosity and ethics and patience and vigor and meditation and the higher wisdom. I practiced all of these, life after life, for hundreds of lives. Therefore I am ready, I prepared myself. I am worthy to sit on this seat. So Mara said, sneering, well that's your story. We don't know anything about these previous lives, these previous births and all these, this practice of the paramitas. We never saw them. Who is your witness? Hmm? Mara, it sometimes said, was the first lawyer. So he asks, who is your witness? So in reply, the Buddha taps on the earth. Hmm? And he puts his fingers on the earth. Eh? This is the position in which you see so many images of the Buddha. The earth witness or earth touching position. And he said, I call the earth to witness. Because all these lives were lived on the earth. On this earth he practiced the paramitas. So he called the earth itself to bear witness that he had practiced in this way and prepared himself. So in response to the tap, in response to the summons, up comes the earth goddess. Hmm? This is also depicted in Buddhist art, a woman of mature uh, age, but still beautiful in appearance. She comes up bearing a vase in her hands, a vase of riches, because the earth is the source of all riches, and she also represents the, the unconscious in another form. And she bears witness, she says, yes, I have seen it all. I've seen all these hundreds of lives. He has practiced all these perfections. Therefore, he is worthy to sit on this seat. And, as I've said, this scene is often depicted in Buddhist art. You see the earth goddess half emerged out of the earth. She's in the earth uh, from, uh, down, from the waist downwards and out from the waist uh, upwards. And she's depicted like this, very much like, I would say, the appearance of Mother Erda in Wagner's uh, The Ring. Erda, of course, means earth, and it's the same uh, name in another form as the Hertha of Swinburne's uh, famous poem. Now the significance of the earth goddess 
is a subject in itself. Uh, there's a whole literature uh, about her. But she represents, essentially, basically, the same forces as were represented in the previous episode, the previous myth, by Mara's daughters. She represents the same forces, but she represents them as now tamed and subdued, uh, ready to help uh, instead of to hinder. So this is the second incident, the second uh, myth. Then, the myth, the episode of Brahma's uh, request. Now, I often uh, have mentioned this, I've mentioned it in the course of the week, so no need to relate in detail. You may remember that after his enlightenment, the Buddha was inclined to remain quiet, not to preach, until he was requested by Brahma Sahampati, uh, the great Brahma, and opening his eyes, the Buddha, as I described the other day, saw mankind like a bed of lotuses uh, in different stages of development and agreed to preach for the benefit of those whose eyes were covered uh, with only a little dust. Now, we shouldn't take this episode too literally. Uh, it isn't so much that the Buddha needed to be asked to preach. Uh, Brahma's request represents, we may say, the manifestation of the forces of compassion uh, within the Buddha's own mind. Eh? We're not to think that literally a god appeared and reminded the Buddha of his duty. Uh, if he was really the Buddha, he, he knew that anyway. So the figure of Brahma represents the emergent forces of compassion and love springing up within the Buddha's own mind after his enlightenment or as a result of the enlightenment or as part of the enlightenment experience and the result of the upwelling of those forces of compassion, the Buddha preached. This is the significance of this myth. As I've dealt with you often before, I'm passing it over rather quickly. Now the fourth and last incident, the fourth and last myth, is rather more complex and interesting, and is called the Muchalinda episode, or the Muchalinda myth. The Buddha spent seven weeks uh, under or near the Bodhi tree after his enlightenment. And at the end of the seventh week after the enlightenment, there came, we are told, a great storm. It's as though the heavens burst open, as you can so often see it in India, not like the little showers we have in this country, and the rain came simply pouring and streaming down. It was apparently the beginning of the rainy season, and the Buddha was still seated under that tree, with only the tree for shelter, and it was a very inadequate shelter. So the myth goes on to relate how Muchalinda, the serpent king, came out of his hole, came out of hiding, and wrapped his coils round and round the Buddha to protect him from the rain, and then reared his hood, which is like a cobra hood, up over the head of the Buddha, just like an umbrella. So this incident also is very often uh, depicted uh, in uh, Buddhist art. Uh, sometimes it's depicted in a slightly comical way. Uh, you get the Buddha's head just peering out over the top of a great uh, coil of rope, as it seems to be, with a little uh, cobra's head like an umbrella just over the top. It looks rather quaint. So this is how it's depicted usually. Now, when the rain stopped, Muchalinda, the serpent king, uh, threw off 
the guise of the serpent, and he assumed the form of a beautiful young man. And he bowed before the Buddha and saluted him. So what does this myth represent? Muchalinda represents, we may say, the forces of the unconscious mind in their most positive and most beneficent aspect. Uh, all over the world, the, the ocean, the sea, water in general, rain, is associated with the forces of the unconscious. Uh, Muchalinda is the king of the Nagas, the serpent gods, and the serpents or dragons represent the forces within the unconscious mind. The waters of the unconscious mind, uh, the Nagas, the serpent deities, are the forces within that unconscious mind. And Muchalinda is the king of the Nagas. So the symbolism becomes quite clear. And the rain represents, the pouring down of the rain, represents a sort of baptism. And baptism, in the form of sprinkling, sprinkling with blood or sprinkling with water, always represents, in primitive religion, even in advanced religions, the investment of the conscious mind with all the powers and forces of the unconscious mind. Now it's further significant that the storm occurred and Mushalinda appeared at the end of the seventh week. It's also significant that Mushalinda wraps his coils round the Buddha seven times. As I say, this is significant. Uh, Mushalinda uh, also corresponds to what the Tantras call the Chandali, the fiery one, or what Hindus call the Kundalini, or coiled up one, uh, usually uh, rendered into English as the serpent's power. Hmm? Uh, the potential of spiritual energy within each man and woman. And the seven coils, hmm, which Mushalinda wraps around, uh, represents the seven psychic centers uh, strung along the median nerve up which the serpent power passes in its ascent from the lowest to the highest uh, center. And the beautiful youth, or the, the form of the beautiful youth bowing before the Buddha represents the new personality, the new being, which is born as a result of this process of ascent of the kundalini, or the coiled-up power. And Muchalinda salutes the Buddha, and this represents the perfect subservience of all the powers and forces of the unconscious mind at all levels to the enlightened mind. Now it's obvious, even from the very little that I've said, that these four incidents, these four myths, have a very deep psychological and spiritual uh, significance. And it's also interesting to note that the four main figures of these myths form a definite set. Apart from the figure of the Buddha himself, what are the principal figures of these four myths? First of all, Mara, the evil one. Then, the earth goddess, then Brahma, and then Muchalinda. And their order of appearance is also rather interesting. First of all, Mara appears, then the earth goddess appears, then Brahma appears, and then Muchalinda. And I'm going to make what may be a rather bold suggestion. It seems to me that these four figures represent uh, the four uh, principal archetypes according to Jung.
and her appearance represents uh, the process of the integration of these archetypes into the conscious mind. In other words, represent or represents what Jung calls the process of individuation. Mara represents the shadow, what Jung calls the shadow. The shadow is the repressed side, the darker side of our own nature. Uh, if any spiritual progress is to be made, this has to be dealt with. We have to let the shadow side come up. We have to see our own darker side and integrate it into our conscious attitude. We have to recognize it as our shadow, not project it upwards and say, well, that's somebody else, not me. Hmm? I have to recognize it as me, as myself, as part of myself. This is me behaving in that way. And then integrate it into the conscious attitude by resolving it. So Mara represents the shadow, or what Jung calls the shadow. Then the earth goddess, the earth goddess represents the anima. Hmm? She comes up from the depths, from the earth. And the anima uh, is the... Uh, what we may describe as the repressed feminine part of the masculine psyche. Hmm? Uh, every uh, mind, every psyche uh, is, we may say, both masculine and feminine. But in the case of a man, the, the, the feminine side is repressed, it's in the unconscious. In the case of a woman, uh, the, the repressed side is called the animus. So we may say that the earth goddess represents the repressed feminine side of the masculine unconscious, which also must be brought up and resolved, just as the earth goddess appears in the myth, and integrated into the conscious mind, into the conscious attitude. In other words, the appearance of the earth goddess represents the process of the integration into the masculine conscious psyche of the unconscious femininity. Now, Brahma represents the wise old man archetype, the teacher. Uh, in Buddhist art, it's interesting to see, he's represented with white hair and white beard. He's a sort of God the Father uh, figure. So he represents a sort of voice of the higher consciousness, which has to be heard not just as a voice coming from outside oneself, but integrated into one's conscious attitude. And Muchalinda represents the archetype of the young hero. Hmm? Now there are many myths in world religions of the birth of the young hero, and the young hero represents the higher consciousness which is born out of the stress and conflict, as it were, of the spiritual life and spiritual progress. So Muchalinda, as I say, represents this birth or emergence of this higher self or higher personality occurring at the end of the individuation process. Now we can go further than this and draw another sort of parallel. Uh, we may say that these four figures of Mara, of the Earth Goddess, of Brahma and the Muchalinda correspond to the four principal figures of Christian mythology. What does Mara correspond to? Well obviously Mara corresponds to Satan. The Earth Goddess corresponds to the Virgin Mary. Brahma corresponds to God, God the Father. And Mushalinda corresponds to Christ, the young hero, as it were. But there's a very great difference. Though we can uh, set up a sort of parallelism between these 
two sets of four, there's a very great difference. In Buddhism, these figures, these archetypal figures, the shadow, mm, the anima, uh, the wise old man, the young hero, that is to say Mara, the earth goddess, uh, Brahma and Mushalinda, these are all regarded as phenomena, aspects of one's own true mind, all regarded as projections of one's own mind. But in Christianity, on the other hand, they are regarded as objectively existent beings. Hmm? That there is a being called Satan. That there is a Virgin Mary up there in heaven. That there is a God the Father also in heaven, firmly seated upon his throne. Or now he's perhaps not so firmly seated. And there's also a Christ figure objectively present huh? uh, out there, Christ the Saviour. So these are all regarded as objectively existent beings. But in Buddhism, these archetypes, these forms, these figures, are regarded, as I've said, as projections, as really alienated parts and fragments of ourselves, so that we have to reclaim what is our own property and integrate them all into our conscious mind and our conscious attitude. So inasmuch as in Christianity, these archetypes are regarded not as archetypes, but as objectively existent beings. Therefore, the possibility of their full integration, and therefore the possibility of the individuation process taking place, therefore the possibility of gaining full enlightenment, uh, doesn't occur. These archetypes are unresolved out there, and the process of integration is not completed. In other words, there's no Buddha, you see. Uh, in, in the Buddhist myth, you've got uh, Mara, the earth goddess, uh, Brahma and uh, Muchalinda, and you've also got the Buddha, hmm? the integrated consciousness which emerges out of the resolution of these archetypes. But in Christianity, there's no emergent Buddha, as it were, because the archetypes are left unresolved, hmm? just as figures and beings out there, hmm? objectively, existent, not recognized as phenomena of one's own true mind or consciousness. Now these are just a few examples, culled almost at random, one may say, these great myths. And it's quite obvious, uh, even from the fact that uh, some of them uh, seem rather to have gripped your attention, it's obvious that the language of myth still speaks very effectively to the human heart and to the unconscious. And this is, in fact, how Buddhism speaks, what I've called the language of myth, how it gets through to the heart, gets through uh, to the unconscious depths. Now, you can surely uh, uh, tell yourselves from your own experience that when something is expounded logically and rationally, you feel it in a certain way. But when you listen to these myths and stories and parables, then you feel it, you experience it in quite a different way. There's a different sort of atmosphere, there's a different sort of feel to it all. And the reason is that the logical exposition reaches the hate, but the myth and the story and the parable and the poem, these reach the heart, reach even the unconscious depths of the psyche. So this is not only how but why Buddhism speaks the language of myth. Now, these are just very small examples, 
And we may say that Buddhism speaks this language, the language of myth, on a much grander scale in some of the great Mahayana sutras, like the Siddharma Pundarika Sutra, uh, the uh, Sukhavati Vyuha Sutra, the Gandavyuha, the Avatangsaka. Uh, we've no time to go into all this, but one thing we can say, and that is that this is the language, the language of myth, that we must now learn to understand. If we can understand, if we can read, as it were, this language of myth, we shall not only be able to grasp Buddhism uh, intellectually, but also assimilate it emotionally. Uh, so far in the West, we may say, our approach to Buddhism has been rather uh, one-sided. It's been a predominantly intellectual approach, and it's time that we tried to redress the balance. The Buddha, as we know, gained enlightenment sitting beneath a tree, the Bodhi tree. And the tree is one of the most important Buddhist symbols. Now, I've no time to go into the significance of that symbol, but one fact uh, we can note about this tree, in fact about trees in general, and that is the roots have to go down very, very deep. As high and as wide as the branches spread, so deep and so wide do the roots have to go. If you have a massive trunk and enormous uh, branches and, and hundreds of little branches and thousands of twigs, but only tiny roots at the bottom, what happens? Your tree is very quickly and very easily uh, blown over. The roots must be deep and strong, uh, as well as the, the branches, lofty and large. And it's just the same uh, with us. Uh, we may say that the branches of Buddhism, the branches of the great tree, which is Buddhism, must spread wide and high within our conscious mind. But the roots of Buddhism must also go very deep down into our unconscious. And only then will the tree of the Dharma be firmly established in our lives. In this way, perhaps, also, we may speak on behalf of Buddhism the language of myth. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 